Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Knob and bot gags, Paul Wicker, the tall vicar, sweary kid. Whether you're into Batman or the Beano, for many of us, comic books guide us through our formative years. In their early days, comics were read primarily by children, and despite that being far from true now, it's still a perception that exists today. But with the comic-inspired Avengers Endgame grossing nearly $3 billion at the box office, it's clear that this is hardly child's play. From manga to Marvel, sci-fi to graphic novels, comics are a format that anybody can enjoy, and importantly, one which allows everyone to become a creator. The beauty lies in the simplicity, and that simplicity opens the door to people who might not see themselves as artistic. In comics, even stickmen can tell a captivating story. No doubt, partway through this conversation, you'll feel the urge to pause and start doodling, and I very much encourage you to do so. Just make sure you come back and press play again later. You really don't want to miss out on the insights of Kev F. Sutherland. He's written and drawn for comics including Viz, Red Dwarf, The Dandy, Marvel, and many, many more. And he's my guest today. Chapter 1. It doesn't have to be a Michelangelo. With Netflix setting aside a fortune to fuel its manga offering, there's clearly money to be made in animation. For many of us, though, drawing doesn't come naturally. So if you're not confident in your drawing skills, what do you do? Can anyone draw? Absolutely anybody can draw absolutely anything. This is my starting point when I do my comic art masterclasses with kids, asking the question, who thinks they can't draw? And of course, you get a sea of hands whether that's just working class, low self-esteem or really bad art teaching, I've no idea. But then I take the kids and by doing a few simple things, like draw a circle, put a dot in the circle, draw another circle. And of course, you joke around these things so the kids don't realise they're learning anything. They're just fannying about with a pencil. And then suddenly within 30 seconds, they've drawn Bart Simpson. Now, it shouldn't be a revelation to anybody that these characters are so popular because they're stupidly easy to draw. But once you give kids that sort of power that they can draw anything, and I get them drawing characters that they recognise, then I'll draw slightly more complicated things, like drawing Iron Man on the flip chart for them is, again, quite mind-blowing for them. And then when he re- they realise he's just got, you know, two little lines for his eyes, two little lines for his mouth, he's got a widow's peak and a chin beard. He's sort of like Michael Evis and a snooker player, is Iron Man, when I draw him. But really easy. So, yeah, anybody, certainly anybody can draw. And my extension from that would be that anybody can do certainly the starting blocks of any uh, creative discipline. I'm not overstating this, but I I don't believe I can draw at all. I've tried many, many times to learn. I've tried because I want to storyboard for either a film or television project. And I stand back and I look at it and I go, that's absolute garbage. Is it the same as other disciplines in the, is it as simple as the more you do it, the harder you work, the better you get? Uh, Yes, and as our improvising friends would say, uh, yes, you can learn how to do it. And and certainly in comic strip terms, you can communicate your idea in a few simple images. Now, they won't necessarily be great images. I, for one, and remember, I've been doing this professionally for so many years, but I am constantly looking at the work of other artists in awe, thinking, like I did when I was 12, 
I wish I could do that, but sort of knowing I could never do that. There's some people whose genius goes above what you can do. Some people whose draftsmanship or draft personmanship can do what you can't manage. But that's not the problem because your work will come out in your style. An example I always quote to them is, have you seen the cartoon Dilbert by Scott Adam, newspaper cartoon? It got made into a, a TV cartoon for a while. Uh, and by the way, he's now gone totally mental bonkers. He's a big Trump fan. But that aside, uh, he started, he was in the IT uh, business and he used to draw these little cartoons he'd stick them on notice boards he'd do very early emails of his cartoons to people and everybody at work would say oh these gags are great scott it's a shame you can't draw because he couldn't draw a thing his characters would be sat behind a table which was just a horizontal line and they would be like little pepper pots with eyes nose mouth and a cartoon of that he literally himself thought he couldn't draw but he could write a little gag that went at the top. He could draw three boxes and put three of these abstract pepper pots in them. And that was enough. He's a multimillionaire as a result of one of the most popular newspaper strips of the 20th century. And that's a guy who couldn't draw. If you can get your idea across, it doesn't have to be Michelangelo. It can simply be emojis. It can simply be uh, the Japanese manga chibi style drawing. The, the Japanese are very good at this, keeping it simple because, of course, they've got a, a, a language based on drawing the characters. And so they know that if somebody knows what you mean, they're following your story already. You mentioned Dilbert. I think of things like Dilbert and things like Far Side that bring people joy in the form of greetings cards. But at the other end, you've got manga and you've got things like Marvel and DC and many, many others. At that end, this is a multi-billion dollar global franchise business. And I wonder whether we we kind of lose sight of that. Could you give us a sense of the size of the comic arts business you know everything from comic sales to festivals to things like comic-con which was not a phrase i i would use until you know only a couple of years ago but now everyone's talking about it how big is this industry i remember when i first told somebody i was going to comic-con he said i didn't know you were a communist there you go <laughs> but uh the industry you know it's like most people's industries uh anybody out there who works in tv works in movie works in the theater probably when you joined the industry someone twice as old as you, told you it's not as good as it used to be. It's been in the decline for years. I can't think of an industry that's not like that. And certainly when I started working in comics, which was at the end of the 1980s, it was in terminal decline. It apparently hit perpetually been so. I mean, there was a golden age back in the 1950s when the Beano comic and the Eagle comic with Dan Darin, they would sell a million copies a week. So I suppose you could say sales have been in decline since then because, of course, television grew and then uh, games grew and the competition against the art form grew. So it doesn't have its place in society in the same way as Shakespeare, having originally been the telly of his day, having been the ITV drama of his day, goes to being what he is now, something that is uh, studied and taken in a different way to the popular entertainment it would have been. So... Comics now have actually had a bit of a resurgence. I, amongst other things, ran a comic festival. From 1999 to 2004, I ran the Comic Festival, which took place in Bristol, and it was about the only one in the country. And we would struggle to get, for example, people to dress up 
what we now know as cosplay then was called the costume parade or even some people would have called it fancy dress we couldn't get anybody to do that 20 years ago now you cannot move for people wanting to do things fashions have changed similarly manga manga existed obviously it'd been in, in existence in japan uh, for 60 70 more years but in britain there were only a few companies starting to sell this and as far as readers were concerned it was only just coming into their purview well now manga is big when i teach my comic classes in schools teenagers especially the more academic stu uh, students your goths and emos those uh, 15 year olds are manga readers because it's sexy stuff it's a good thick book that gives you some uh, genuine quality reading time as opposed to a tiny thin Marvel comic which you can read in 20 minutes flat and costs you about the same as the paperback book uh, manga has exploded so loads of parts of the business are really big and the other thing that's grown is people taking comic books and making them into movies there was a little bit of that when I was running my comic festivals 20 years ago but as everybody knows from the Marvel movies on down that has really changed everybody's perception of the comic business. They think of comics as things that are in the movies. The downside of that is when I talk to the kids in the classroom, they know the movies, but they don't know the comics. Many of them don't even know that they've got anything to do with comics. I mean, there's a lot of movies, if you think about them, you wouldn't know that Men in Black came from a comic, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came from an independent comic, and Howard the Duck was based on one of my favourite comics as a kid. Um, I read Howard the Duck back in the day. I think it's not just kids that, that wouldn't know. I mean, I I knew those, but only because I researched your work and, and had found that. But I'm, I'm sure you could quote, you know, a dozen films that have been based on comics and I wouldn't know the original source material. Does that have a knock-on impact then? Do people who come to the movie first, do they then go and, and visit the, the, the comic version of it or do they just stick with the movie? I think it's pretty well exactly the same as movies based on novels. The source material is one thing and as anybody who does movie adaptations and works in movies uh, will know, you take your source material but then you are making a different thing. So the movies, if they succeed, have to be movies that stand alone. Uh, there's a couple of examples uh, that I know from the comics world where they've taken a movie, Watchmen is the most famous example, and someone, uh, Zack Snyder, had made a movie but way too respectful of the source material. So as a result, it, I don't think, worked perfectly as a movie. The TV series, Different Kettle of Fish, but the movie in some parts is a panel for panel adaptation of the film and that restricts it as a film and doesn't add anything to the comic book or the graphic novel, which stands alone as a perfect work. Uh, you find this all the time. I mean, uh, Dickens adaptations where you have to take out Dickens' words, leaving only Dickens' dialogue, and then you've basically not adapted, you've got You've got the plot, you've got the dialogue, but you haven't got the book. And the same thing happens with comics. You've got to take out what happens on the page because the magic of comics is one picture appears beside another, following another. They appear on a page, which is a unit in itself that you see and you appreciate as a whole. You've got things like the page turn, a thing that you can do in comic books probably better than you can do in words-only literature. In, if you're writing a novel uh, and then somebody's putting it into a hardback, somebody's putting it into a Kindle adaptation, 
you can't dictate where the page turn is. Well, with a comic book, you can use that page turn like an editor in a movie uses it. It's like, I don't know what's going to be happening when I turn over this page. Wow, it's a whole page size splash of somebody hanging dead off the back of a door. Uh, which is an image that I just dredged up from a, uh, a book called A History of Violence by John Wagner and John Higney, Higgins, which was adapted into a movie with, oh God, was it Viggo Mortensen? I can't remember now. It was David Cronenberg directed the movie based on a graphic novel by John Wagner, who was the guy who created Judge Dredd in 2000 AD comic. Before we move on to chapter two, if this podcast has inspired you to write more, or maybe even to write for the first time, then you may be interested in our sister project, The Writing Salon. Its membership is 200 people strong and features all levels of experience, from people who've never written before to people writing for stage and screen. We publish anthologies of member-produced work, and just like Behind the Spine, find learning opportunities in unlikely places. The Salon has been running for several years. Right now it's a virtual event, but we hope we can reunite in person before too long. It's an active community, and if you're looking for support, it may be just the thing you need. We're on Twitter and Instagram as at The Writing Salon. There's a private Facebook group. Just search for The Writing Salon group. If social media isn't your thing, no problem. We'll put a link to the email newsletter sign-up sheet in the show notes. The Writing Salon is by writers, for writers, because writing is hard. But now, on with this week's episode. Chapter 2, Breaking the Mould. Through mechanisms like the page turn, a comic book offers a unique set of tools to its creator, an unrivaled world of experimentation, unbound by what we typically understand as conventional literature. It's fair to say that anything goes. That attitude has been around since the very advent of the comic book. This culture of rule-breaking should be a lesson to all of us, whether writing comics or not, because it has allowed them to evolve and adapt in incredible and unexpected ways. I've been really lucky growing up as a kid reading comics through the 70s, 80s and into the 21st century because so many of the innovations happened for me. They happened while I was watching. I mean, for a start, when you grew up with the Beano, you were seeing creators like Leo Baxendale, who back in the 50s had invented uh, the Bash Street Kids and uh, Minnie the Minks. And then he did a whole load of comics, uh, which aren't very famous now, but Wham! comic, which had a character called Grimly Fiendish and a whole load of these really bizarre characters. And his imagination really shaped what funny comics in Britain still look like today. Just the way that you draw faces with a circle for a nose and big overlapping circles for eyes. He was as influential on comic books as Tex Avery was on animated cartoons 70, 80 years ago. And a lot of these innovations were happening as I was reading them. So he invented a character called Willie the Kid, who was basically almost the first British graphic novel because uh, he published his own book and he got it out into the market where until now you'd only had annuals you know with hardback books with comic strips in and suddenly he had this whole thing with his own character in and uh, it's it's hard to describe because essentially it's like uh, the beano with wee poo and fart jokes in but it revolutionary book really the kid then you had uh, writers like Alan Moore emerging in the 1980s. And this was in British comics like 2000 AD. And then there was an independent comic called Warrior. And these were the people who were really starting to break. Well, they weren't breaking the rules. They were observing many of the rules that existed in other disciplines. The first of which was 
taking your art form seriously, starting to imagine that your readers were uh, over 18 like yourself, and so not insulting their intelligence. I mean, it sounds like novel writing 101, but in comics, because they'd always been for eight-year-old kids, people wrote down. And at the start of the 1980s, you get writers like Alan Moore and Steve Parkhouse and Grant Morrison and Peter Milligan and Mark Miller. You get many of these writers who grew up starting to do um, grown-up stuff. Some of them would start to do just you know, gratuitous uh, material, and we get an awful lot of that in the present day. But a writer like Alan Moore was starting to take his work seriously, structurally, looking at it in the same way as he would write a screenplay. So he does stories like Halo Jones, which appears in 2000 AD, Skiz, which was um, a rip-off of E.T., where an alien lands in Birmingham, and uh, that, uh, again, worked beautifully in that, in that structure. Uh, D.R. and Quinch, about two juvenile delinquent aliens running wild um, around the universe. And then he went on to do the stuff that we're more familiar with, V for Vendetta, and then uh, Watchmen. Talking of um, writing to a, perhaps a more sophisticated or grown-up audience, um, if you take that and extend it to its, I guess, its furthest extremity, you get publications and, and comics like Viz, which was certainly very, very formative for me growing up. Am I right? Did this start with the, the creator was just selling this in bars and pubs? Is that right? Yes. When Chris Donald created Viz, this was a really good example of being there at the time. I was watching this happen. The thing about Viz was uh, it's the sort of thing where you're told you can't do that. And somebody uh, will have said to Chris Donald, you can't do a comic that's like the Beano, but all full of sweary words. Nobody will ever sell it. He ran it off. The first ones were run off on the photocopier at work because he worked for the DHSS in Newcastle. He ran off cheap copies. He went to pubs and clubs, just the place that he regularly frequented, and sold these. I think it was 10p a time, wasn't it, for the first visits that he, he sold? And uh, then they would print them. Then they would get lo local establishments to run adverts in them. And of course, when you do knob and bot gags, when you do Paul Wicker, the tall vicar, when you do sweary kid, uh, these things, which were designed to make, uh, I think he was 19, so they're designed to make a 19-year-old laugh. They will make every 19-year-old laugh. If you know your mate's sense of humour, you can sell a thing to your mates. It's how quite a lot of comedians start. It's how all bands start. You entertain us, a core group of people, and if they get it, there's a chance that the wider world will get it. And in the case of Viz, it grew um, just by, there was a, a, a distributor called Moore Harness and somebody got a chance to see this and realised it might go a little bit further. And then it somehow got onto the desk of Richard Branson and Richard Branson, a guy working for him called John Brown, said, we could sell this, Richard. And Richard said, no, we couldn't. Look at it. It's just the Beano with sweary words. So John Brown started his own company and uh, made his millions by selling a sweary Beano. To, he knew he had access to the Virgin Megastores, so they would sell it on the counter of the Virgin Megastores. And then when people, when it sold out and sold out more, eventually he got it into WH Smith. All of this from the starting point of, that's a thing you can't do, but a guy did it anyway. He had nothing at stake. He was only 19 and you couldn't predict it happening. 
I mean, I think that's the case with every art form that takes off. It comes quite often from nowhere. You know, many of our great things like the rock and roll boom, skiffle music, you look at it and you think, well, carry on, kids. It can't do any harm. And then all of the kids love it. And suddenly you have the Beatles. Suddenly you have hip hop. Suddenly you have Viz comic. The Beano was the same. When the Beano starts in 1938 and before that, the Dandy in 1937, they are a comic without little words underneath the pictures. So they've just got the picture and some voice bubbles, uh, which the Americans were starting to do in their comics, because uh, the Beano and the Dandy start in the same year as Superman and Batman. So these ideas are sort of bubbling around in the air and they're being done in the cheapest uh, medium and they're being done in the medium that no one's taking any notice of. So there's no one who really has got money to lose here. It's just, oh, we're doing another one of these kids' comics like we do with the Victor and we do with the Hotspur in in America. We do it with adventure and we do it with detective comics. So sure, if these kids want to do something a little bit radical, you know, in the case of the Americans, people in silly costumes with their pants outside their trousers, let them. In six months' time, we'll be doing something else. And in the case of the Dandy and the Beano, if they want to do Lord Snooty, a, a posh kid who hangs out with the gaswork kids, if they want to do Desperate Dan, some cowboy who also looks like he's in Scotland, uh, who bends lampposts and smokes tobacco out the end of it, then yeah, let them. It, there'll be something new next week. Next week. That's how it happens. Chapter 3, My Shakespeare. Just when you think we've run out of ways to reimagine the work of William Shakespeare, something blindsides you, and it isn't until you hear the concept and the rationale that you realise how blindingly obvious it is to do it that way. Why didn't I think of that? And I have to say, Kev's adaptation of Shakespeare to the format of a graphic novel is a stroke of pure genius. Well... I have been writing and drawing for comics for 30 years. I've worked for the Beano extensively, writing and drawing my own stories. So I did Bash Street Kids Adventures, and I've worked for Doctor Who Adventures, and I've worked for Marvel. Uh, mostly for Marvel, I was working as an artist, but I was also starting to break through as a writer, writing Werewolf by Night, uh, and then Marvel filed for bankruptcy. And that's a long story, but anyway, haven't worked for Marvel for a while. But as well as writing comic books, I uh, work writing for, uh, write, doing stand-up comedy, writing stage shows, and I did a show called The Sitcom Trials, which was on stage, taking a writer's work, where we would do short sitcom scripts, and pitting them head-to-head -head with actors on stage, so that uh, the audience would then choose the thing they liked the best. So I've put things on stage, and I've, I've written for pretty well all media. One of the things that I had always had in my mind was how I would do Macbeth, because when I've seen Macbeth, I have thought that people were, in many ways, making him too much of a hero. Uh, if you think of the Patrick Stewart version, which was shown on the BBC, he's very much a successful warrior. And I didn't think that that's how I perceived the story. And a favourite play of many of us, going right back to 1977, is Abigail's Party by Mike Lee. Well, Abigail's Party is how I have always seen Lawrence and Beverly from Abigail's Party. That is my Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. 
and I've talked to loads of people uh, when I'm taking my shows up to the Edinburgh Fringe. I'm in the loft bar saying, of course, my version of Macbeth. And everyone's saying, oh, I'd love to be in that. But of course, I don't have the wherewithal. And by the way, I've never directed a serious play. I've only directed comedy. And I may not have directed it most successfully. Who knows? And so I couldn't put on a play, but I could do a graphic novel. And at the end of 2019, because I knew I was going to have a couple of quiet months in which I could really get my teeth into this, I planned the, the project. So I did a 125-page uh, graphic novel adaptation of Macbeth. It's called Findlay Macbeth. Uh, my name is Kev F. Sutherland. My middle name is Findlay. And as it turns out, researching the real Macbeths, he is part of the same clan as my ancestors on my mum's side were clearly as well. The Findlay clan. Uh, Macbeth was part of that same clan. Who knew? So Finley Macbeth is a salesman in 1977 for a manufacturing company in Scotland called Alba Industries. So instead of having conquering kings fighting in um, this medieval structure, I have uh, the salesman of the year and he gets overlooked for promotion because Duncan McCrinnan instead chooses to promote Malcolm McCrinnan. And so he's frustrated, but he's frustrated. And he's this guy, although he's good at sales, he doesn't have the social skills. He doesn't have the confidence. You know, he's just he's a guy in a brown suit and a kipper tie. His wife, Linda Macbeth, is more ambitious. She's manipulative. And again, familiarity with Abigail's party. You can picture the character who's molding her husband in that way. And then when you see that, so much of Shakespeare's dialogue blends with that vision of his story. Now, in my uh, adaptation, I still have the stabbing. I still have the death. I have the servants, the chauffeur. I still have the guest room in a very big house that uh, the Macbeths live in, which is well beyond their uh, usual budget. You know, Linda has made him really overstretched the mortgage payments. And again, there are lines in Macbeth which back this up. He gets himself in a bit too deep. There's lots of blood. And in my version, I've reimagined a lot of the dialogue, but I've kept a lot of Shakespeare in there too. And I've looked very closely at the witches because they have agency, which a lot of times is overlooked, especially Shakespeare kind of drops them out towards the end of his telling. In my story, the, uh, the witches are the secretaries who very much run the company. They're, they're the first face you see when you come into Albert Industries, as they're the first see, face you see when you come into Macbeth. And in my version, you see them right to the end and you get more of an understanding of the part they play in manipulating the story. Um, and I don't want to spoil more of the uh, adaptation than that. But that was how I was going to do it on stage. And that's how I've done it in the book. And of course, in the book, I can I can do more with the visuals. I've always found the accessibility of Shakespeare um, fascinating. We know these plays so well, and yet we still find new ways of performing them. You mentioned the Patrick Stewart version. I saw that in the theatre, and it was the most terrifying production I have ever seen. And everybody knows that you're supposed to end at the first part. You're supposed to go to interval when Banquo dies. They didn't. And I was like, wait, what's going on? I don't understand it. But because it was set in a military hospital, what was great is that the witches were nurses 
And of course, they had what we now know is PPE. They had masks on. And the line, your beards do tell me otherwise, just worked perfectly because they were and sometimes little touches like that. They make it, don't they? Well, that's an interesting thing with the Patrick Stewart one as well, because um, we were talking about ad adapting into another form and you take the form that works for your audience and their expectations. The porter. Now, the porter scene in the Patrick Stewart adaptation, he was made dark and grisly. And the bottom line for me, he was made not funny. Now, he's a comedy routine in my version. And I'm sorry to spoiler this for readers, but my porter is Billy Connolly. Now, he's actually a Billy Connolly tribute act for uh, potential copyright reasons. He's referred to as that. But it's set in 1977. I took the most popular comedian of 1977. And then he does a series of topical gags about people who've just died, because that's what the porter does. The porter comes in. He does topical gags about people who've just died, because that's what the audience needed at that point in 1590, whatever. That's exactly what they need. That, that was the point of it. Um, your audience have just been off to go and get, I don't know, Lark's head in a bag. I don't know what they ate. But um, you then come back for your light relief. You're then put in the right temperature. And then you're segued back into the drama and the introduction of a brand new character, McDuff, McDuff who's going to come and uh, help solve our crime. That's what's going to happen in your story. And you do it the way that works. I mean, I might have got it wrong. And jokes about Mark Boland having died might not be very funny. But that's... You know, you do what works. And and so much so that you you didn't just stop at Macbeth. You've carried on. You've done two more, haven't you? Yes. Well, my second book, I was going to do Finland Macbeth and then I was going to sell it at the book festivals and comic conventions that I've been invited to for 2020, none of which happened. And so uh, I started doing a new, a new one under lockdown. And that was Prince of Denmark Street. Taking Hamlet, again, this is an idea I'd had on the back burner, but it was even less of a, a, a stageable thing because I'd envisaged Hamlet as a punk musical. The adaptation was very interesting because you look at Macbeth and it's a really good film plot. This is why Macbeth gets adapted into Japanese film versions and, and so on, because it's 90 minutes long. If you do it properly, you motor through the action. Hamlet. And I've subsequently read this disgust a lot. But my first thought was what a lot of academics have also hit on. There's more material here in here than you would perform in one go. When you're reading, uh, and I've got various versions from first folio and quartos on, you're reading four hours of material. It's a director's cut. This is a version taken from lots of different ways of performing Hamlet, lots of different productions uh, from Shakespearean times. And you would never do the whole thing. You chop and select from this. And so um, that's a really good starting point. There are too many words. That's my problem with um, Shakespeare's Hamlet. Way too many words. So what happens is, in my version, I've set uh, Hamlet in 1977 on Denmark Street, which was Tin Pan Alley. As people will know, it was the heart of the music industry from the 1920s right up until about the 1990s. And in 1977, it was the heart of the music industry. There were still recording studios in the basement. The publishing companies were mostly still there. The Sex Pistols lived upstairs above, I think it's number six, Denmark Street, and recorded in the basement. Malcolm McLaren paid for them to have this flat up there. And my 
Hamlet is a character called Joe Prince Hamlet, and he is the lead singer and songwriter of a band called The Danes. We've got Rosencrantz and Guildenstern on drums and bass, and Horatio Starr is the lead guitar. And they are an up-and-coming punk band. Their uh, manager and the record label is uh, Uncle Claude, essentially Claudius. But what happens when Prince Hamlet discovers what's happened to his father, who was King Hamlet, who was a 1950s rocker who's died under mysterious circumstances, when he is given a visitation by the ghost of his father, which, again, spoiler alert, it happens during a broadcast of some old footage on the old grey whistle test. I've, I've got whispering, whispering Bob Harris in my version. When Hamlet discovers what happened to his father at the hands of Claude and his mother, Gert, uh, who they've now married, then he starts exacting his revenge. I tell the story again, we're not doing conquering kings in castles in Denmark. We're in the music industry when there are still lots of things at stake. There's Ophelia, the uh, hippie singer songwriter. Her career is there and growing. Her father, Polonius, is an old prog rocker, Polonius monk. And uh, he's He's now um, an A&R man for the record label, as well as being wise counsel to the youngsters, saying things like, oh, yes, I heard your John Peel session. And we have the same things that we play with as in Hamlet's Court in Denmark, but in Denmark Street, where it's a good little environment to keep everything happening. So Claude and Gertrude have got a flat on Denmark Street, as well as having the place in Hampstead, which means that you can do your stabbings and then be quite close to the place you've got to be next. Uh, there's a church at the foot of the street as well and a pub around the corner. So I've got everything. I've got all these things on Denmark Street. If you can imagine Hamlet as the Lion King, you can certainly imagine it as a, you know, a, a band called the Danes set in the late 70s in the middle of Soho. It, it it just works. Just just on what you said about Hamlet, if you haven't seen it and if, and if listeners haven't seen it, immediately after listening to this, go on to, to Google and just type in Shakespeare's agent. Um, there is a brilliant secret policeman's ball sketch where Rowan Atkinson plays Shakespeare's agent and Hugh Laurie plays Shakespeare. And it's basically... Rowan Atkinson is rewriting the to be or not to be speech because he says it's five hours, Bill. There are too many words in this. You need to you need to cut it back. It's it's one. It's really funny. It really, I've is. forgotten that script. Well, luckily, I didn't put any anything about there being too many words in my version. But it is the thing that strikes you. There are too many words. I think Ben Elton must have written that script because he refers to this in Upstart Crow. And I think it's what a lot of people, when you write, you rewrite. And lots of us do editing down, especially in comics where the balance of words and pictures is something you're very much aware of. You're aware of it if you're doing the comic timing of a live performance. And when you're doing it in film and you're doing it in TV, you take a uh, dialogue out, you strip it down, you get to the point. When you're doing comedy writing, you have to be particularly concise. And those of us who do comedy writing and comics writing find we're using the same discipline it's taking words out leaving you with the bit that is funny or doesn't hold up the storytelling and um yeah ben elton would be very aware of that and somebody doing comics you you can't have a voice bubble that's more than half the picture 
Kev, just finally, the, the masterclasses that you've been running, normally you would be um, in, in schools in person um, running these, presumably, you know, giving immediate feedback on what, um, on what kids have been able to, to produce. How, how easy has it been for you to, to pivot and, and to move that online? Have you been able to run the masterclasses online? I've been very lucky in that the comic art classes I do work perfectly online. I mean, I stand up there at a flip chart, just like I do in the classroom. I can get the kids interacting uh, in the same way with call and response as I do when I'm in the classroom. Uh, getting schools to um, come on board with it, I've been lucky as well. Loads of schools are up for doing it, as long, of course, as they've got the, um, the software and the hardware. Um, the first schools that I worked with were independent schools where right from the start of March, they had been able to get the kids working on their own tablets at home. Increasingly, I'm finding regular schools are being able to have me in. So that's that's marvellous. Um, uh, KevFComicArtist.com. You'll be able to find my contacts. Please have me into your school. I've also been running them for any anybody to come and join. So I run those regularly. Uh, advertising them on my Twitter and my Facebook so that anybody can come along and join the classes and they go away having produced a comic um, I do a caricature of them as well and after two hours hopefully they've learned everything that I know how to do so they could leave school and steal my job <laughs> well that's absolutely writing is all about borrowing as, as we've discussed many times it's been an absolute pleasure we will put links to your work in the show notes but Kev F. Sutherland thank you very much it's been a pleasure Thank you, Mark. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Kev F. Sutherland for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learnt? Absolutely anyone can draw. Comic book characters are so powerful because they're so simple. The author of Dilbert made millions with what were basically stick man drawings. Don't let your perceived lack of artistic ability hold you back. Whatever you create will be in your style. And that's the whole point. The creator of Viz was told, you can't do that. Clearly he could. Learn to break the rules, even if comics aren't your bag. They aren't the only medium where rules can be broken. Be brave, experiment, and ignore the naysayers. Shakespeare can always be reimagined. It's a great lesson in creativity to sit down and consider ways to tell the stories in a unique manner. So many people have done it before, so it forces you to tap into the deepest parts of your brain to come up with something new. The simple act of attempting this will do wonders for your creativity. And finally, Kev says his lack of knowledge in playwriting is what led to the creation of his Shakespearean graphic novel. Don't let your writing go unread just because you're not comfortable with the medium you think it fits best in. Make it fit somewhere else. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood, and if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing.